Welcome back to the Goodbye July podcast. And I am so excited because today I'm doing my very first episode on something that I haven't talked about much, but that's played a big role in our lives. And that is Bitcoin. If you don't know, the reason we came to El Salvador in the first place was because when we were attending a Bitcoin conference in Miami in 2021, they announced that El Salvador would be the first country to adopt Bitcoin as a legal tender. Two months later, we were on a plane headed for this tiny Central American country that, yes, we had heard of before, but that we definitely couldn't have pointed out on a map before then. Fast forward a year and we moved here full time and it all started with Bitcoin. Now, when considering how to structure this episode, and there are so many different routes I could have picked, but what I decided was, for the purpose of today, my goal is simply to explain what Bitcoin is, why I believe in it, and why, for me, I consider it a good investment. Hey, my name is Jessica Tolar, and I'm obsessed with all things passive income, productivity, entrepreneurship, and building a life where you make the rules. I'm a normal girl who took a free money class, asked a corporate executive how she retired early, and used that knowledge to build a seven-figure net worth, quit my nine-to-five, and now run an online business from countries around the world. I teach you the simple but effective secrets to building a life you adore. Think I'm special? No way. If I did it, so can you. Money, mindset, life hacks, hardship, growth, and planning are all topics we discuss here. Think of this as a weekly coffee date with a close girlfriend where you talk about the finance and business knowledge it'll take to make your dreams a reality. So take a seat, get comfortable, and prepare to be challenged and cheered on while you learn. This is the Goodbye July podcast. Just real quick before we get started, I have something that you are going to love. It's a free resource on budgeting, and I realize that budgeting may not feel like the sexiest topic, but across the board, it is the number one way to get started in truly taking control and mastering your money. And once you start incorporating into your life, it is honestly a lot of fun. So grab my free resource at jessicatoller.com slash what's my budget. It'll make your life a whole lot easier. Again, that's jessicatoller.com slash what's my budget. Okay, let's get back to today's episode. I'm going to go ahead and throw in a disclaimer here because I'm going to do my very best to explain Bitcoin as simply as possible, but the reality is it's a complicated topic. So please do not take every single thing I say to be the end-all be-all truth. You ultimately are responsible for verifying any information for yourself should you choose to join me and the thousands, if not millions of others who are part of the Bitcoin community. To kick things off, I'd like to ask you to consider something. If I asked you to explain the internet to someone who had never heard of it before, what would you say? It's difficult, right? You'd probably say something like, it's a network of computers that can talk to each other and send information back and forth very quickly. And you wouldn't be wrong, but that also wouldn't make it a whole lot easier for your new friend to understand. And that's a bit how I feel right now trying to describe Bitcoin, okay? And it's probably if you, once you understand it and you try to explain it to somebody else, it's how it's going to feel a bit for you too. And, you know, for the skeptic in you, let me just say this to that part of you that's already feeling skeptical, to use the analogy of the internet again, what if you had turned your back on the internet simply because you really didn't get it the first time someone explained to you? How different would your life be, right? So again, Bitcoin is similar. 
It's difficult to understand, but once you do, you cannot unsee the power that lies within it. So it's much more than just money. And we'll eventually get to that. But like I said, to start today, we're going to talk about it from the perspective of money because that's what most people associate it with. Now, before we get into the history of Bitcoin, let's discuss the history of money as we currently know it. So to begin, let's talk about the history of fiat currency. Fiat, that's F-I-A-T. Fiat currency means a currency that is not backed by a commodity like gold. So for this episode, the fiat currency we'll be discussing is the U.S. dollar. Now, the U.S. dollar was not always fiat. Prior to 1971, it was on the gold standard, which means that for every dollar, there was a certain amount of gold. And I like to illustrate this with a fictional story. It's possible that pieces of this story actually happened in real world history, but for the most part, it's just meant to help you understand the importance of your paper money being backed by something of value like gold. So let's say it's a long time ago and people were trading in gold. Instead of having dollar bills that they traded for stuff, they traded in gold, okay? Well, after a while, if things were going well for you, you would have quite a bit of gold. Great job. Except there are two problems. Number one, not only is gold physically heavy, but number two, it's a physical asset that thieves can steal from you. So you're having a hard time physically carrying your gold around and also keeping it safe from all the people who are trying to rob you. So one day, a man called a banker comes to your house and he tells you that he has a highly secure vault protected by armed guards in which you can store your gold. And so that you don't have to come to his vault to get your gold out every single time you want to buy something, he's going to give you a certain amount of paper notes to show how much gold you have in your area of his vault. So that way, when you go to the market, you can give one of your paper notes to, you know, the guy you're buying fish from or whatever, and he will know that that one piece of paper is worth one ounce of gold. And then later, he can go to the bank and he can turn in that note that has your information on it and they will give him one ounce of your gold or they will move one ounce of your gold from your area of the vault into his area of the vault. Hopefully that helps paint the picture of what the gold standard is. Now, let's come back to real life. So remember, prior to 1971, the U.S. dollar was on the gold standard, meaning every dollar was backed by a certain amount of gold. However, that year, Nixon took the U.S. dollar off of the gold standard, which means that ever since then, the dollar has not been and is not currently backed by a commodity or anything tangible. You know, I would go so far as to say the dollar only has value because everybody agrees that it has value. Now, another thing to know about the U.S. banking system is that it's centralized, which means that there's a main authority that controls it. And that central authority is called the Federal Reserve, or the Fed for short. And I'm not sure if you know this, but the Fed is a private entity. So it's not technically a part of the government. I mean, they have some government officials who sit on the board, but its decisions do not have to be approved by the president, legislators, or any elective official. So the checks and balances that apply to the government do not apply to the Fed. Now, think through history about all the times where there has been a single person or a single entity in power without any kind of checks and balances in place. Would it be safe to say that, historically speaking, more often than not, those people abuse that power? 
That's for you to decide. I'm just putting the question out there. Regardless of your opinion on that, let me tell you the facts. Number one, before 1971, the U.S. was operating on the gold standard, meaning the U.S. used a monetary system in which the U.S. dollar was based on a fixed quantity of gold. Number two, in 1971, President Nixon took us off the gold standard, which means the U.S. dollar became a fiat currency. Okay, fiat money is, again, a type of currency that is not backed by a commodity. Number three, that means essentially before 1971, there was a natural limit to how many U.S. dollars could be printed because the U.S. dollar was tied to a fixed quantity of gold, right? There's only a fixed amount of gold in the world. It's not like you can make more gold. There's only so much of it in the world. So because the U.S. dollar was tied to that, there was a natural limit to how many U.S. dollars could be printed. And then number four, now, since the U.S. dollar is not tied to gold, it is not backed by anything physical, no physical commodities, the Federal Reserve can print as many dollars as they want, which then leads to inflation, which robs you of your dollars and the life energy you used to acquire those dollars, which we talked about in episode 20. So as a result, fiat currencies like the U.S. dollar are inflationary. With them, you will continue to see prices go up and you'll continue to have to work harder and harder since everyone eventually becomes worth less and less. Every dollar becomes worth less and less the more the Federal Reserve prints dollars. I know we discussed inflation on episode 20, but I want to share a powerful story about hyperinflation, which just means inflation that's gone completely out of control, to really drive home this point. I recently read a book called Digital Gold by Nathaniel Popper, and in that book, there's a man named Wences Cesares, who's an entrepreneur from Argentina, and he tells a story about his childhood experience growing up in an economic climate of hyperinflation. And on one episode of the Unchained Crypto podcast, he reflects the following. He says, I remember my mom came to take me and my two sisters out of school in the middle of the morning. She'd never done that before. She was carrying two plastic bags full of cash. She had been paid her salary. She was a receptionist at the government bureau with a modest salary, and that modest salary took two plastic bags full of cash to fill. She took us to the supermarket, and she gave us each an aisle with a list of things, and we met at the cashier, and when there was some money left over after all of that, she would send us back to get more stuff so that we could spend all of the money. When one of my sisters asked her, why don't we save some money for tomorrow? My mom explained that tomorrow it was not going to be worth as much. At the time, there were no barcodes or computer systems as we see them today. This was 1989. So there was one person who worked for the supermarket whose job was to change the prices. And our job was to go in front of that person. The person went through all the aisles, putting the new prices, and when he finished, he would start it again. So you literally saw the prices change if you followed this person. Our job was to stay ahead of that person. It's crazy, but I saw it happen. Now, there are other examples of this throughout global history. It's not just Argentina. I mean, it ranges from Germany, Yugoslavia, Hungary, Venezuela, Zimbabwe. There's tons of them. And here's a hard truth that I personally had to accept. Just because you may live in a first world country does not make you immune to this, does not make you immune to inflation, and it does not make you immune to hyperinflation. 
you know, I'm not sure if you've heard, but just recently, China, Russia, Brazil, India, and some other countries actually stopped doing trade based in the U.S. dollar. And things like that don't look so good for the U.S. dollar. It doesn't look as good as it once did. Now, the last thing I'll mention about centralized banks is that although having a bank account is beneficial in many ways, you're also placing your money inside someone else's care. It's not 100% within your control if you're trusting a centralized bank or centralized authority to look after it. And while worst case scenarios are not incredibly common, when they happen, they're exactly that. They are the worst case scenario. Let me tell you a story about something that happened in Cyprus. So in 2013, the country Cyprus hit a financial crisis and they needed a bailout. Germany agreed to bail them out, but they did so under the condition that Cyprus drain money out of its citizens' bank accounts to help pay for the bailout. So yeah, you heard that right. The powers that be in Cyprus literally raided their citizens' bank accounts. Again, worst case scenario. But I bet you the people in Cyprus never thought something like that would happen to them. I've lived many years of my own life wearing rose-colored glasses and thinking that because I'm American, this or that would never happen to me. But as I get older, I realize that being from the U.S. does not make me immune to anything, especially the acts of my own government or my own banking system. (laughs) And please don't get me wrong. Don't misread what I'm saying. I am incredibly grateful to be from the USA. And there are so many things that are fantastic about the states and the freedoms that we enjoy are so much greater than many other places in the world. I love being American. I really do. But what I'm saying is the simple fact that I was born on U.S. soil and carry a U.S. passport and qualify as a U.S. citizen does not mean that worst case scenarios cannot happen to me. And I felt it was important to admit this on this episode in case you consciously or subconsciously may have been wearing the same rose colored glasses that I did for so many years. Now, with that said, let's talk about Bitcoin. Bitcoin is often referred to as digital gold because like gold, there will never be any more of it. There's a fixed quantity and that quantity is 21 million. And there will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin, period. Now you're probably wondering how I know that, which is a good question because we just got done talking about the Fed printing as much money as they want. (laughs) Well, the reason I know this is because at its foundation, Bitcoin is code, and it is written into the code that there will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin. Now, don't let the code thing freak you out. It's just numbers on a screen, which you should be used to because for most of us, the majority of the fiat money we deal with in our lives is also just numbers on a screen. You know, remember, when you log into your bank portal and see how many quote unquote dollars are in your bank account, chances are There are not actually that many dollars in your physical bank branch down the street, and there's certainly no physical gold. In reality, it's all just numbers moving from one screen to another, from my account to yours, from here to there. So don't tune out Bitcoin just because I said code, okay? Let me tell you why code, or in other words, math, actually works in your favor here. So Bitcoin is code. And the reason that works in your favor from a financial perspective or otherwise is because it's backed by the laws of mathematics, which means that, as they put it in my favorite Bitcoin documentary, governments can point all the guns they have at two plus two, but it's still going to equal four. Another way to say that is math cannot be influenced. 
It cannot be biased. It does not have emotion or ulterior motives. It cannot be bribed or swayed. It does not get greedy or seek certain moves that will benefit it the most. Math is math. (laughs) Math has a fixed answer. It's not this way or that way. It simply is whatever it is in the same way that two plus two will always equal four. Another way of saying this is because Bitcoin is based on mathematical code and the fixed maximum quantity of 21 million Bitcoin is written into that code, that's the way it is and the way it will stay. Well, Jess, you might be wondering, what if the person who wrote the code changes the code? What if they change the rules in the same way that our governments change the rules every time they print more money and devalue the fiat US dollars we have? Well, I would reply, that is a great question, which brings me to the next incredibly valuable point about Bitcoin, which is that it is decentralized. That means instead of there being a single source of authority, like the Fed, for example, the responsibility of Bitcoin is shared among a lot of different people all around the world. And if you're confused, stick with me because I'm about to explain. But to do so, I have to take us back to the original creation of Bitcoin in 2009, which is fitting because it was born in the middle of a fiat-based financial crisis. First, let's rewind even further to the mid-2000s, okay? So in the mid-2000s, a person or group of people who went by the online name of Satoshi Nakamoto wrote what was essentially a long proposal for a decentralized digital currency that would eventually become Bitcoin. I say Satoshi was, quote unquote, a person or a group of people because Satoshi went through a lot of trouble to keep their identity a secret. And, you know, if I were proposing something that would go up against the global banking system, I would probably do the same thing. But for the purposes of this episode, I'm going to refer to Satoshi as a he. Now, in the proposal Satoshi presented to other like-minded individuals online, he described the way new Bitcoins would be created and injected into the economy. And this process is what makes it decentralized. So remember how we talked about the Fed deciding to print more U.S. dollars? Well, it's important to note that most of the time, the phrase, quote unquote, money printing is figurative. Most of the time, the Fed isn't actually printing physical dollars. I mean, sometimes, yes. But most of the time, what that means is they're putting money into the system by electronically adding credits to all of the banks that they own, right? So it's really just a matter of adding numbers to the screens like we talked about before. So the Fed will add credits to its banks and or it will buy assets. So in other words, it'll buy investments and it'll give those new dollars on the screen to whatever company or government entity or whoever they're investing in. So now you can see why, in my opinion, the people the closest to the figurative money printer benefit the most. But alternatively, in Satoshi's proposed decentralized model, he created an incentive reward system for new Bitcoin to be released into the economy. And if you've ever heard of a Bitcoin miner, this is where that comes from. A Bitcoin miner is just a fancy phrase that describes a fancy computer that races against other computers to solve complex math problems. And whichever computer does it the fastest is rewarded with Bitcoin. So again, it's a reward incentive model and it's a win-win for everyone because the people who own the miners or the fancy computers, they get Bitcoin, which again, for our purposes, you can think of as money. 
And the more miners there are, the more computers there are, the stronger the Bitcoin network becomes. Now, the Bitcoin network or, you know, the network of these specialized computers, that network is responsible for keeping a public ledger of every Bitcoin transaction. So in other words, they're responsible for verifying and processing all of the different Bitcoin transactions and then keeping a record of those transactions on the network, which is also called the blockchain. Now, if this sounds complicated, just think of it in terms of something you already understand. So let's talk about a payment processor. So when you pay for something with your credit card, it's not just you and the merchant involved. There's a third party, which is the payment processor. So think of the company logo you see on your credit card. And that payment processor, they validate the payment, they make sure everything looks good, and they confirm that money should be reduced from your account and then added to the merchant's account. And in exchange for this, they normally charge the merchant a percentage, and that is how that payment processor gets paid. Now, all of this is to say that although Bitcoin was, quote unquote, one person's idea, being Satoshi Nakamoto, the way he designed it, the network is now made up of thousands of people all around the world who play a vital role in not only helping with the transactions, but maintaining the code, which again, states that there will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin. So that is what makes it decentralized. The fact that all of these different people around the world, all of them maintain this network. It's not just one central authority. It's not just one central person. It's not just one leadership board. All of these people all around the world who don't even know each other are all maintaining this network. They're all managing these transactions. That's what makes it decentralized. And that's how we know no one person or no one group can suddenly change the rules. And that's how we know there's always going to be 21 million Bitcoin. While we're on the topic of the 21 million cap of Bitcoin, I'd like to point out that this is what makes it deflationary. So in last week's episode about inflation, I mentioned that Bitcoin is a deflationary asset. And this is why. Because like physical gold, there's only ever going to be a fixed amount. Again, remember, you can't just make more gold. It's a naturally occurring precious stone. And because of the way Bitcoin is set up, you can't just make more Bitcoin in the way that the Fed can just make more dollars. The percentage of Bitcoin that you hold, as compared back to the total of 21 million Bitcoin, will always be the same percentage, meaning your purchasing power will never decline. Whereas, like we talked about last week, the percentage of total dollars you hold decreases every time the Fed prints more money or makes more money or puts more numbers on the screen, whatever you want to call it. The number of dollars that you hold, they decrease every time that happens. That makes the U.S. dollar inflationary. So the fact that Bitcoin is deflationary is one reason I think it's a, it's a smart investment for me. Again, I can't tell you what to do, but that is one reason that I think it's a smart investment for me. Another is because you have the option of digital self-sovereignty, which in normal language just means that you have the option to be your own bank. So let me explain what that means. And I guess before I do this, a word of caution, okay, being your own bank comes with a lot of responsibility. So for example, in the traditional banking system, if someone steals your money or your identity or whatever, there's usually some protection or process in place to manage that. You're either insured up to however many hundreds of thousands of dollars, or there's some other way for you to be reimbursed for anything that's wrongfully taken from you. But when you're your own bank and someone steals from you, there's no 1-800 number to call to get your money back. It's gone. So why would I want to do this, you might ask? 
Well, remember those people in Cyprus? The ones whose banks drained their personal money from their personal bank accounts? Again, none of us are immune from the worst case scenario. Here's a personal example of where this would have been helpful in my own life. Last year, Corey and I sold our first property, and when the deal closed, we had six figures deposited into our bank account. We'd also made a plan beforehand regarding what we were going to do with that money, so as soon as the money hit, we started moving it into various investments. About a day later, our bank shut down our bank account with no phone call, no warning, and when we called to ask them what was going on, they told us they couldn't discuss it over the phone and we would have to come in. When Corey finally got an appointment and went in person to the bank branch, they essentially said that our activity looked suspicious, which we still don't really understand how money coming from a real estate broker as a result of a property deal in one of the fastest growing cities in the U.S. looks suspicious. But my point is, if someone besides us was watching our transactions, they made a decision without consulting us. And they permanently closed our bank account, which is irreversible, apparently. So it resulted in a lot of just wasted time and effort and energy on our part to go in person to the bank, have this conversation, cancel all our old cards, get all our new cards, update all our auto payments and bill payment that we pay for every single month. It it was a lot. So that was just an example that we faced. Another reason you might want to be your own bank is to avoid any censorship. For example, last year you may have heard about the trucker strike in Canada, but did you know that not only did the banks freeze the truckers' bank accounts and assets, but many people all around the world who were donating money to the cause were also blocked from sending the truckers' funds? If you're your own bank, you can send any amount of money to anyone in the world at any time for whatever reason, and no one can stop you. There's no maximum limits like you see with many traditional banks, and there's no censorship. You can pay who you want for whatever you want, and you can support whatever cause you believe in. I do want to say it's important to note that with Bitcoin, you don't have to be your own bank. You do have the option to keep your Bitcoin in what I would essentially refer to as crypto banks. So companies who allow you to keep your Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies with them, and some of them offer some protection, kind of like insurance against theft. But again, you run into the threat of those worst case scenarios the moment you agree to let anyone else watch your money. So it's a trade-off, right? What if the crypto bank fails and goes under, as we've seen some of them do, both traditional banks and crypto banks? Or what if they decide to drain your crypto bank account or censor your spending in some way? Again, pros and cons to each, but if you're willing to learn how to be your own bank, I personally can see the benefit of it. Now, before closing out, I want to discuss why I believe mostly in Bitcoin and not as much in other cryptocurrency. So now would be a good time for me to say that Bitcoin is a type of cryptocurrency, but not all cryptocurrencies are Bitcoin. There are loads of other types of cryptocurrencies, but I personally only hold Bitcoin. Again, disclaimer, it's not like I'm an expert in every single cryptocurrency out there, but in general, from my experience and what I have learned about some of the other cryptos, what it comes back to for me is decentralization, the importance of decentralization, and in my opinion, Bitcoin being the best at that. So the way that this mysterious Satoshi figure created Bitcoin, it's important to me. 
I love that he did not appoint himself the leader of a board that runs Bitcoin. Again, he made it in a way that spreads the power across thousands of people around the world. And then he pretty much just disappeared. As far as I understand, no one has heard from Satoshi in years. Compare that to other cryptocurrencies. Many of the other ones, they have leadership teams who are making decisions that will ultimately impact their respective cryptos. But with Bitcoin, it really does feel like the people's money. It feels like this beautiful gift and great responsibility that is shared among the people around the world. And to me, that feels safer, so to speak, in terms of an investment because no one entity is in control. And short of turning off the internet, there's no way to stop Bitcoin. When Corey and I explained Bitcoin once to a family member, they said, you know, I asked my financial advisor from whatever bank about Bitcoin and they advised against it. And if you talk to your banker, I would not be surprised if you got the same response. To which I would respond with another quote from my favorite Bitcoin documentary, which is this. Explaining Bitcoin to a bank feels like explaining Amazon.com to Barnes & Noble. Of course, they're going to tell you it's not a good idea because the very existence of Bitcoin threatens the system upon which traditional banks are built in the same way that the birth of Amazon.com threatened Barnes & Noble and it threatens so many other physical retailers. And then to borrow just one more quote from the documentary, one man says, I think Bitcoin will do to the U.S. financial system what email did to the post office. It won't make it irrelevant but it will force it to focus on its strengths. And to that, I would reply, I agree. I've mentioned on the show lately that for someone like me who really believes in Bitcoin, I don't think I'm using it enough in my life yet. It's something I'm working on now, especially since living in El Salvador. And like I said, this is the first country in the world to adopt Bitcoin as a legal tender. So you can go around and you can buy stuff with Bitcoin, which, you know, if you've never seen that done before, it kind of looks like Venmo or Cash App or Zelle. The person you're buying from, they pull up their QR code, you scan it, you type in how much you want to send them. And that's how it works. But I haven't really been doing that enough yet in my own life. And it's something that I'm working on. But something I wanted to say about using it as money it's important to note that you can acquire fractions of a Bitcoin. A lot of people think because the word Bitcoin, it's non-divisible like a coin. That's not how it is. Think of it like in the same way a US dollar, one US dollar can be broken down into 100 cents. One Bitcoin can actually be broken down into 100 million Satoshis or SATs for short which are appropriately named in honor of the creator of Bitcoin. So you can certainly acquire fractions of Bitcoin, even very, very small fractions. So if you want to try it out, I think the price today for one Bitcoin is $28,000. So don't think that you have to go spend twenty eight grand to experiment with Bitcoin. You don't have to have anything near that. You can literally get started with one US dollar. And if you're not quite ready to dip your toe into the pool or really rather the ocean that is Bitcoin, I would recommend starting with that documentary that I've referenced several times throughout today's episode. It's on YouTube and it's called The Rise and Rise of Bitcoin. It's a really good watch. I definitely recommend that. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't say that, yes, right now, Bitcoin is volatile. That is the nature of new technologies and it's very normal. But you should not put any money into Bitcoin or any other investment that you cannot afford to lose. 
So as always, you can use my free budget calculator to see how much money you have left over every month after you pay all of your bills that then you can go put into your emergency fund or into investments or that you can play with Bitcoin with whatever that looks like for you. So I always, always, always recommend people start there first. You can grab my free budget calculator and all of the different resources that we talked about on today's episode in the show notes at jessicatoller.com slash zero two one. I really hope you enjoyed my very first episode on Bitcoin. And I hope to do more of these in the future because like I said, today's episode was only about the monetary aspect of Bitcoin. But the real power lies in the blockchain. So remember, we talked about that network of computers that maintains the integrity of Bitcoin, essentially. It's called the blockchain. That's where the real power is. And it is so powerful that it can help us accomplish things as important as truly honest elections. So I look forward to sharing more about the blockchain and all of the other aspects of Bitcoin in the future. I'll probably grab some people living in the area. We're only 10 minutes away from Bitcoin Beach after all. So I might start grabbing some people and interviewing them on the show. So stay tuned for more. Don't forget to grab your free resources in the show notes at jessicatoller.com slash 021. Can't wait to chat soon. And until next time, work less, live more, and keep on chasing your wildest dreams. Congratulations on finishing another episode of the Goodbye July podcast. If you want more, head over to jessicatoller.com slash podcast for show notes and any resources mentioned in today's episode. Don't forget to rate the show, hit subscribe so you never miss an episode. And if you would, share it with a friend. I believe in a world where we're all financially free, so let's help each other get there. Thanks again for tuning in, and I'll see you on the next episode of the Goodbye July podcast.